You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute.
For example, in India, it's obvious uh, the crisis we are facing today. The principle on which the mobilization, the right-wing fascist mobilization is happening is on the ground of majoritarianism or Hindu, uh, what we call Hindu communalism. The obvious question that arises before us is to go back to the history of the partition of the country, which was, if anything, is an example of cultural trauma. That was when a whole people who have lived together for perhaps millennia are torn asunder. Now, what does that do to you in a long-term sense? Can those wounds be uh, so deep that, in fact, do they have heals to a large extent and so many more seven decades uh, down the line can still somebody come up and actually tear them open again and again try and use them for particular kinds of political mobilization which favors certain kinds of economic and uh, social domination. So these questions keep coming back to us and these are some of the issues that I've raised before you. What I'm really going to do today in this lecture is raise many of the issues. I'm not going to come up with answers so much as raise questions about which are the things at which we need to look at. Uh, as I've said in what has been circulated also, but I repeat it for uh, the sake of uh, those who, you know, and I'm sure that includes many of us who would not have had to time or the opportunity to go through every abstract. What I'm really trying to do in this talk today is to uh, use a long-term historical frame to understand the evolution of democracy in the modern world and its linkages with other contemporary processes of the transition from a feudal to a bourgeois state and society. If I may uh, put it differently, uh, not just from a feudal to a bourgeois state and society, but from a pre-industrial to industrial economies, from empires to nations, from colonies to independent countries. All these transitions happen in the modern world. And what is the linkage or the linkages between the evolution, that is the progression, and the recessions of the regressions of democracy in the modern world? And these are the contemporary processes that goes on because democracy, it's not as if it's happening in a vacuum. All these other things are happening simultaneously. Uh, also, let me make just one or two disclaimers. Uh, I'm not going to talk about the terminology because many people are going to do that and I don't want to get involved in that, what democracy really means. I'm going on the basis of a shared common understanding of democracy and moving uh, for The relevance and immediacy of this attempt is evident from the crises that are spreading rapidly among democracies, from whose contagion no part of the world is exempt. Sadly, as I said, my country, of whose democratic traditions we were very proud and which had defied many prophets of rule who had prophesied that democracy could not take roots among a poor, illiterate, backward people is in grave danger today of joining the bandwagon. We have so many examples, Brazil in Latin America, the US in North America, Hungary, Poland, Russia, Italy, Europe, Turkey, in the Middle East, I could go on and on, where democratic structures and values 
are being corroded and challenged by populist, authoritarian, and fascistic formations. We can differ over the causes, we can debate the extent, we can argue over the consequences and the remedies, as I expect we will do over the next 10 days, but we cannot doubt the existence of the crisis that we are facing. The study of democracy has expectedly received an enormous amount of scholarly attention over the years, mostly from political scientists and sociologists. Historians, as is their wont, have documented it, told its story, recorded its upswings and downswings, but on the whole hesitated to generalize about the causes of its strengths or weaknesses. Therefore, when we discuss our main question of the day, what historical conjunctures are favorable to the growth of democratic institutions and which ones are not, we initiate the discussion with the work of some select sociologists and political scientists. My selection is obviously somewhat subjective, it's uh, arbitrary, because the field is so large that any selection I do is bound to be inadequate. So I basically picked very few only to raise issues. I've picked those who have raised different kinds of issues. But I thought referring to some texts instead of talking in generalities would be a valuable way of going about it, especially for our uh, young researchers and students. So I'll begin my discussion by referring to the classic work of Barrington Moore Jr. called The Social Origins of Dictatorship and Democracy, Lord and Peasant in the Making of the Modern World. This was published in 1973. Moore was a very eminent uh, sociologist based in the United States. And his is an example of a framework influenced by Marxist class analysis, which raises fundamental structural issues about the relationship between class conflict, class alignments, class dominance, etc., and the processes of transition to a democratic bourgeois society. Moore employs a comparative frame where he takes up case studies of the British, French, American, these are three from the Western world, and Chinese, Indian, and Japanese from Asia uh, transitions. He, he says a common precondition for modernization appears to be, this is the historical frame he brings in, appears to be the emergence of strong absolutist monarchies around the 16th to 17th centuries, which checked the power of the marauding nobility. So that's a kind of first precondition he sort of talks about. No modernization, he says, would be possible without it, because the feudal classes, he assumes, are the main obstacle to modernity. So you first need these monarchies which check the power of the nobility. But he also says that the nobility must have some independence. There must be a balance of power between the monarchy and the nobility, as there was, he says, in Britain and France. Where nobility has no power, he says, as in China or in India, this is all suspect, but these are its formulations, also conditions are not right for modernization. So this is one kind of baseline theory that he lays out for the transition. 
so then he has a kind of, you know, like a checklist of what works, what doesn't work. And for shortage of time, I will just go through it one by one uh, so that you get an idea of what are the things that he's looking for. For one, uh, as, I, as I said, the first one is the monarchy, then balance of power between nobility and monarchy. You need strong towns and the growth of a bourgeoisie as a precondition for the emergence of democracy because they are the natural home of democratic notions. You also need peasants. He doesn't like peasants at all. For him, for democracy to appear and, and grow, peasants have to essentially disappear. How they do it is like, depends from country to country, but they can either be wiped out of existence through enclosures, collectivization, you know, or become or change into commercial farmers. You know, they can, they, they can do what they like, but as long as they are not important and really, because peasants for him are like a good Marxist, you know, as Marx said, they're a sack of potatoes and the repository of everything conservative and feudal and reactionary. So he, true to his Marxist tradition, he doesn't like peasants at all. And in fact, he uh, seems to think that the persistence of the peasantry in France, despite uh, or because of maybe the French Revolution, which was based on the peasants, it, take, it takes time for revolutions to do away with those that have fought them. They do in the end very often. But it takes time. Uh, so he, he, he sees the persistence of the peasantry in France as a reason for the weakness of French democracy in the 19th century. He says the ups and the downs are because of the survival of the peasantry. He sort of idealizes the British model, as you can see. In the American one, you know, you don't really have feudalism to get over, so the issues are slightly uh, different. You have a pre-capitalist uh, uh, system and you also have the free peasantry because the issues are very different. Uh, he also uh, sees the glorification of the peasantry as a particular feature of conservative part of modernization and fascism as in Germany and Japan. So you know as you can see he's, he sort of attributes the peasantry with these kinds of qualities and also uh, this conservative uh, modernization model, which he talks about a lot, uh, is combined with a certain uh, notion of anti-capitalism, which again finds its home among the uh, peasantry. So basically he is, she's talking about, uh, okay, just one or two more things. Uh, there should also be no alliance between the bourgeoisie, that is the owners of industry and the new rising uh, professional classes, and the landlords against the peasantry and the working class. When that happens, then you have what he calls the conservative modernization model as followed in Germany, as followed in Japan, which leads to fascism. That is not the route to a democratic capitalism, a bourgeois democracy. So this essentially is the kinds of linkages that uh, he draws. And uh, the one exception he makes, which is that he says that if the landed aristocracy survives, then sometimes they can become not an impediment to the growth of capitalism if they themselves become commercial, uh, take to commercial farming. 
Apparently that happened in parts of uh, Eastern Europe, where in fact a kind of second serfdom also came. So that route too is possible transition to modernity, but not to democracy. Okay, so if we look at it in broad terms, what he's looking for is, he's saying basically that there are two alternative routes. One is the route in which you have democracy combined with capitalism, a bourgeois democracy, and the other one in which he, what he calls a conservative modernization, where you have the, uh, without democracy, you have the growth of industrialization. And in the second model, broadly speaking, he sees an alliance between the bourgeoisie and the landlords, but there are various other uh, sort of subtexts which he also talks about. He has a naturally, as you would expect, an elaborate set of explanations. There are exceptions, there are qualifications, but I'm just putting forward at a very broad level what he talks about. Another very interesting feature of his work is that somehow, again, perhaps uh, true to his Marxist uh, tradition, violence appears to him to be a necessary condition of the bourgeois revolution as it destroys the power of the landed classes when they oppose the revolution. So that it seems to be a necessary uh, route. And he attributes the problems of Indian democracy, and I'm coming to India here. He's one of the very few people who actually talks about India at all in any comparative studies uh, of whether the peasantry or other democracy or whatever. Somehow India has generally uh, you know, fallen out of comparative uh, studies because it doesn't fit neatly into any of the models of either the communist revolution or uh, the bourgeois uh, revolution. Here it does uh, we have what we may call a modernization and a bourgeois revolution, but without violence. And that's what worries more as well. So he, he's, he in fact attributes the problems of Indian democracy to the absence of revolutionary violence in its emergence. Even though he says landlords were weakened by the British departure, and in fact, there was no alliance between bourgeois and landlord, which actually in his theory is the main impediment to the emergence of democracy. But even though that is not there, he doesn't think that that's enough. Somehow lack of violence for him is very important. And he says that it has meant the persistence of a backward social structure. The, interestingly, India seems to disturb these theories, but instead of re-examining them in the light of the Indian experience, he almost sounds exasperated with India for being what it is. I mean, it's like, and you know, why aren't you fitting into my theory? You know, and at one point he actually expresses that by saying somebody very brave can only take on the problems of this country. I don't know whether anyone had asked him to, but somehow it sounded like he was saying, you know, oh God, but you know, what to do with you? Nonviolent revolution, he doesn't call it revolution, I'm calling it revolution. No alliance of feudal and bourgeois, weak fascistic tendencies, a predominantly peasant society, democratic institutions, not any worse than in many other liberal democracies, modernization based on an alliance between bourgeois and peasantry, all this has no room in his theory. So it's a very strange case in India. It doesn't fit into any of those neat models that he's built. In fact, in India, it was the peasants who were the backbone of the democratic struggle for freedom and they have not been the ones who have responded to anti-democratic or fascistic mobilization. 
despite all these theories. For example, today, the backbone of the communal fascist forces are not tradition-bound peasants, but smartphone-using youth in cities and in small towns, poorly educated, often unemployed, and other members of the so-called progressive middle classes, mostly working in the modern sector of the economy. So there are lots of question marks, which, what you know, the history of India, as well as what's happening now, uh, place on uh, Moore's uh, overall uh, understanding, particularly his understanding of the role of the peasantry. Nevertheless, I find Moore very useful for directing our attention to certain crucial aspects of economic, social, and political structures that underlie the ideological struggle for and against democracy. An understanding of these aspects is imperative, not just for understanding the past, but also for guiding the future course of the democratic narrative. I'll now go on to discuss the work of Fukuyama, Francis Fukuyama. Uh, the text I'm using is his famous text, The End of History and the Last Man, published 1992. Moore was 73. Now, Fukuyama sees uh, bourgeois democracy or capitalist democracy as the end of history as being the inevitable, in, in the sense of being the inevitable aim of history. It came, this book came after the collapse of, the, of socialism in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, and saw the victory of the, what was called the free world as having reached the pinnacle of human achievement. Basing himself on Plato and Hegel, he argues that human beings have three natural urges. One, desire, two, reason, and three, what Plato called thymos, or the need for recognition. Modern science, he says, leading to an industrial society provides for the first two, satisfaction of desires and reason. To quote him, desire and reason are together sufficient to explain the process of industrialization and a large part of economic life generally, but they cannot explain the striving for liberal democracy, which ultimately arises out of Thanos, the part of the soul that demands recognition. As social change occurs, he says, there is universal education, greater equality, more cosmopolitanism. People demand more than just wealth. They want recognition of status, they want recognition of their self-worth, they want dignity. I quote him again, if people were nothing more than desire and reason, they would be content to live in market-oriented authoritarian states like Franco, Spain, or South Korea, or Brazil under military rule. But they also have a thymotic grind in their self-worth, and this leads them to demand democratic governments that treat them like adults rather than like children, recognizing their autonomy as free individuals. Fukuyama also believes that, or believed, that, I quote again, a world made up of liberal democracies then should have much less incentive for war, since all nations would reciprocally recognize one another's legitimacy. He says nationalism has been domesticated or weakened in Western Europe, much like religion was three or four centuries ago, 
But in Eastern Europe, he says, and the former Soviet Union, it is strong because of the suppression of nationalities for so long. There, the, he, he also talks about the left critique of this position, which is that liberal democracy recognizes people unequally. In the sense it recognizes them, but there is inequality at the heart of it. And he also talks about a right critique of this position, which is that man who does not desire to excel, to be, to be superior to another, no sense of competition, no sense of wanting to innovate, uh, can, is really a dead man. So according to him, uh, there are people, and these are the sort of inner contradictions of the notion of this being the end of history. These are the internal contradictions. He doesn't really talk about the external uh, contradictions, but internal to his model, he says these are the issues to which uh, perhaps he's still seeking an answer. And then he ends sort of by saying that will this be, the, the will these internal contradictions be the real pitfalls of uh, democracy? That is inequality and everybody being like the same, but then what happens to your desire? to excel, which means you want to be superior to others. So he's questioning the basic notion of equality as well as a critique of his position. So what is very interesting about uh, uh, Fukuyama is that he is quite the opposite of Bradbury to Moore, and therefore I took him up immediately afterwards. He is locating the whole impetus for democracy in the human soul, you know, uh, and you can't, you, you, you can either agree with it or disagree with it, but you can't really argue. Because it's it's about, then you're arguing about essences, you know. Uh, is it the human essence? So therefore the critique can also be no. If I say no, the human essence is competition and desire to dominate and it can never go away. You counter it by saying, but no, over time man has become different and, you know, greater desire for equality. But he's here talking about the soul. He's not talking about ideology. Because he's linking it, linking it up, going back to, as he says, to Plato to uh, say that these are three parts of the human soul. Now, again, I'm not saying that there's no value in what he's saying. You know, we do talk about the human's innate desire for justice, there being some, uh, you know, uh, basic uh, uh, human uh, notions and desires and uh, characteristics as well. Uh, so I think it's very valuable to look at Fukuyama, but at the same time, I would say that one needs to uh, be careful about what direction that argument can lead us in, and is it a sufficient explanation? You know, because the part I didn't talk about, I, I didn't really have time, you see, he also, uh, when he's saying that as far as reason and desire are concerned, modern science, has taken care of all of those, you know. Because there he says that, you know, the industrial society, the technology, it is sort of, it is, he says it is endless in its pursuit. There is no end to it. But I mean, the whole environment issue has now brought before us that this is not endless in its pursuit. So there are certain assumptions which he is making about modernization, 
which he seemed as the kind of backdrop and only this part was left, the soul, the chaos in the soul was the only issue and that's what bringing us to democracy. I think there are big question marks there, but I think he's still very valuable, uh, very fine, uh, finely argued, a deep philosophical base uh, and therefore very valuable to raise the issues and to think about what it is, are there basic human urges or are they not? Or if they are, do they get uh, suppressed over time? What is the link between basic human urges, so to say, and ideology? What happens when ideology comes into conflict? I have a natural nurturing urge as a mother, but I have an ideology which tells me that Muslim women are not human beings at all. And their children are not really children at all, but monsters. We've had examples where women, Hindu women in India have participated in massacres of Muslim women and their children. We recently had two or three weeks ago, uh, a legislator publicly saying that, you know, Muslim women should be raped. I mean, from a public platform. So what do you do about, what, what is that relationship? between ideology and what I hope are still basic human urges. What happens when these come into conflict? How do we lose our so-called humanness or humanity when we get swept? So there are, there are very many fundamental issues, but I said what that's, that's what's been valuable is that they, they get raised. Uh, another text which I'll uh, talk about is, uh, again, I think, a rather well-known uh, scholar in the field, Larry Diamond. Uh, it's a book called The Spirit of Democracy. This is published in 2008. He has other stuff before and after that, but I've uh, chosen this one because, uh, you know, the, it's, it's sort of a very comprehensive uh, uh, study of the subject. Now, what is very interesting about Larry Diamond is that he doesn't present himself as, as an uh, objective social scientist. He presents himself as a crusader for democracy, you know, unabashedly. So he makes it, makes, it makes it very clear which side uh, he's on and not just in a mild kind of way, but as somebody who is obviously uh, deeply committed to the struggle for democracy in the world or pushing democracy in the world. And the, he, he frames the issues in various kinds uh, of ways, but one of the very interesting ways in which he uh, frames uh, the issue in, in the beginning of his book uh, is that he sees it as uh, the issue of democracy as a tussle between two opposing forces in US politics. And he begins with talking about, he said, the famous line of Franklin Roosevelt, who said of the Nicaraguan dictator, Anastasio Somoza, I quote, he may be a son of a bitch, but he's our son of a bitch. <laughs> you know, so there are dictators, but they are ours, you know, so they are correct, you know. And he says, the contrary uh, opposing force, according to him, is represented by uh, John Kennedy, and he quotes at length his famous speech, uh, call to freedom everywhere, we will support people who are free world everywhere. So it's very interesting, he sees it as a contest in very ideological terms between two opposing forces 
in American uh, society. And I think that's interesting because for him, his battle is very much there in American society. He's a crusader on the side of freedom. And he talks about how as a very young child, he heard this speech by Kennedy and how it has lived with him all his life. He goes on again by framing it as a contrast between Lyndon Johnson and Nixon on the one hand versus Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan on the other. I'm a little surprised with the second example by Reagan, but he's, I don't know, I don't want to comment that much. Uh, he's very critical of US Cold War policies which supported dictators and helped overthrow democratically elected governments. He's very upfront about it. He talks about Iran in 1953, Guatemala in 1954, Chile in 1974. And then he talks about his own intellectual journey as a student and how, because of what he saw around him, and I started to think about these things, he decided in his doctoral uh, uh, dissertation uh, that he wanted to study democracy itself. I did not accept that democracy was a facade that did not matter to people, or that we had to give up hope for democracy in poor countries. In India, if India could survive democracy, survive as a democracy for decades, with only a brief interruption, I'm quoting him, why not Nigeria? They were both poor, intensely divided along ethnic lines, and with British colonial traditions. So in my doctoral dissertation, he says, I attempted to answer that question. And in doing so, I sought to identify the cultural, economic, political, and international factors that might foster and sustain democracy, even in the poorest countries. In the discipline of sociology in the late 1970s, my efforts seemed to many quixotic and naive, if not absurd. Frequently, my work was dismissed with a derisive declaration that the challenge was not to explain why democracy would fail in a place like Nigeria, but why it should be present anywhere outside the West, with, with its high levels of development and Judeo-Christian cultural traditions. That was the dominant uh, understanding in academia and in society. Why are you bothering? I mean, it's so obvious. He said the consensus was that the prospects for democracy were very bleak. He gives many examples of famous uh, scholars of the time uh, who wrote. I am not going to uh, give my time on that. But uh, I will like to uh, take the example of Huntington, because Huntington, as you know, Samuel Huntington became very famous later uh, for his uh, clash of civilizations uh, theory. So here, very interestingly, he says that Huntington was one of the Huntington was one of the skeptics uh, about the growth of democracy or the spread of democracy in the world. And he says that even as late as 1984, when in fact a new and still unnamed wave of democratization was gathering steam in the world, Huntington, uh, in a famous article which, which asked the question, will more countries become democratic? answered, not many. And in fact, reviewing the economic, social, and cultural conditions that favor democratization, Huntington predicted that only in a few of the more developed countries in Latin America and perhaps East Asia, uh, democracy might grow. Interestingly, just seven years later, Huntington would publish a new book 
naming and tracing the stunning third wave of global democratic transformation. Just a few years later, because according to, in fact, one of the valuable things that you find in Larry Diamond's work is that he documents this, uh, the waves of democratization, the progression as well as the recession. So it's empirically also a very rich work and a very useful work for studying democracy. So the question which Larry Diamond puts to himself is that how did a world which seemed so naturally and even ineluctably authoritarian in 1975 become predominantly democratic by 1995, these 20 years. How could so many social science and foreign policy experts be so wrong? But then he also asked, unfortunately that's not the whole of the story, and from the late 1990s, this boom has given way to a recession. He dates this recession from uh, the fall of democracy in Pakistan, the coming of Musharraf uh, in 1999. He says the wave of recession begins then and it's still uh, going on. But in any case, the question uh, still remains. And uh, he then goes into the various theories uh, that have been provided uh, for this. And he says that basically, since the American and the French revolutions, two views of liberty have been, have been contesting. One is that revolutions express universal rights and values. And the second is that even if people are in some sense created equal, somehow not created them equal, they are nevertheless not imbued with the same values and expectations of government. Freedom and democracy are not universal values, but you know the answer, Western concepts. Culture limits how far they can travel. One of the more famous advocates of this position has been the longtime prime minister, he says, of Singapore. Lee Kuan Yew, who in trumpeting the Asian values of order, family and community has made it his business to tell people not to force their system on societies in which it will not work. So he says very interestingly, some of those who talk about Asian values are the dictators in the Asian countries who will obviously lose their position if democracy spreads uh, to, to those countries. It's not the people of those countries who say that they don't like democracy, but it's those in power who don't like it. And I can give you many examples from India, uh, which happened at the time of transition in 1947. Many of our princes, uh, you know, who went to join the Indian Union and now become Democrats uh, overnight, all talked about this Asian values, Asian democracy is very different from Western democracy. This is a very favorite uh, argument of uh, the old elite. And in fact, he says that uh, it is, he, he talks about Huntington's thesis of clash of civilizations. And he says, Huntington says, those who do not recognize fundamental, that are civilizational divides, are doomed to be frustrated by them. So for Huntington, there is a given civilizational divide. So don't try to make Iraq democratic. That was Huntington's objective of that theory, why are you wasting your time, you know, trying to make demand, Iraq democratic? You 
a surprise to me that you really believe that that's what the US was doing there. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I hope there aren't too many who believe that. <laughs> even, even Tony Blair is now doing a rethink on that one. Uh, but Oh, again, I'll just quote to another line from Huntington to show how powerful uh, this is. Uh, he, in 19, uh, Huntington says, uh, the West differs from other civilizations in the distinctive character of its values and institutions. These values make Western civilization unique. And Western civilization is valuable, not because it's universal, but because it is unique. So that's why we must preserve it because it's unique and keep the values to ourselves and democracy to ourselves. And what is it a very interesting twist that Huntington gave to it? This is where you have genius but used for the wrong arguments. He says, trying to spread democracy therefore is an imperialist project. Imperialism is the necessary logical consequence of universalism. Okay. Because if you try to spread it, you have to use power to spread it. And that's imperialism. So cultural arguments about the limits to democracy, he says, became fashionable again. But are they right? He asks. And here Amartya Sen's work comes in uh, very useful, who in fact has talked a lot about this. And I'm not going to elaborate on this because I understand that Aditya is going to be uh, talking about this at some length uh, tomorrow, but I'll just briefly uh, uh, present his basic uh, argument to you. Amartya Sen essentially says that, that uh, his, his, his understanding is, I'm quoting him, that the championing of democracy and political freedom in the modern sense cannot be found in the pre-enlightenment tradition in any part of the world, East or West. What we have to investigate instead are the constituents, the components of this compound idea. And in this regard, Sen and many other Asian thinkers and scholars, he says, find a powerful presence of many of these elements in their own, so the traditions of their own societies. And I will stop here because otherwise I'll be just repeating what Aditya says and I'm already short of time. So Sen makes this argument at great length. Uh, there's also an economic argument, which uh, Larry Diamond talks about. And he says that how, in fact, the, uh, the pessimism about the spread of democracy was also very much driven by the modernization theory, which found a powerful correlation between democracy and the level of economic development. To be a democracy, it was believed a country had to first develop economically. So, the logic was to side with and invest in modernizing authoritarian elite rulers. Chiang Kai-shek in Taiwan, Park Chung-hee in South Korea, Lee Kuan Yew in Singapore, Sarato in Indonesia, Ferdinand Marcos in the Philippines, the generals in Brazil and Chile, the Shah of Iran. And eventually, once economic development took place, democracy would fall. It's another matter that very conveniently all these dictators were the allies of the United States and the West in the Cold War. Incident. Just a side fact. Uh, now, he, again, I'm going to shorten this because he gives us many examples of 
people who argued this, the famous scholar Seema uh, Martin said, uh, and uh, then other studies which had been done uh, uh, by other people where this was argued that the richer the country, the greater the chance that it would sustain uh, democracy. But he says, what has happened over time now is that recent work, especially empirical work, surveys done in various countries all over the world, have in fact shown that since 1990, several democracies in the lowest income category have outlived that expected lifespan, which was supposed to be about 40 years, including Benin, Mali, and Malawi. Among the bottom third of countries in terms of human development, Democracy has been in place for over four decades in Botswana, for over half a century in India. This was, book was written some time ago, etc., etc. Over the past three decades, an unprecedented number of very poor countries have embraced democratic forms of government. If one takes the bottom third of countries in terms of human development, the proportion of democracies rises to 42%. And then there are then he also talks about, about Amartya Sen's argument on this question. He says he won the Nobel Prize for Economics in 1998 for showing that democracies, uh, that how democracy is not an extravagance for the poor, but a necessity. That how he turned the whole argument around Amartya Sen. And he showed that democracies do not have famines. This is because relatively free flows of information in a democracy raise the flag on food and other emergencies while the mechanism of political accountability give politicians a powerful incentive to be responsive. And democracy, therefore, he says, is not a luxury that can await the arrival of general prosperity, and there is very little evidence that poor people prefer to reject democracy when they have the choice. And in this, there are also various surveys which he has cited, the data is all there, where people in the poor countries have been surveyed and they've overwhelmingly voted in favor of wanting a democratic form of uh, uh, government. Um, so I've already talked about what is valuable in, in Diamond's work, but I'd just like to say a few words about uh, what, is, what is weak in his work is when he comes to how democracy can be saved and furthered. Here, I find that his approach is not structural at all. Uh, there's no talk of decreasing inequality between citizens and between countries, for instance, or adopting economic policies that are labor-intensive, or about reducing discrimination within societies on grounds of race, religion, gender, other ethnicities, all of which provide fertile ground for fascists. Instead, he talks in very general terms of doing away with arrogance, greed, ineptitude. This is what plagues Democrats, he says. And uh, so it's the, the, the answer uh, which he gives about how to struggle against this is very inadequate. But his narrative, uh, the documentation, the arguments against those who say that democracy cannot spread are indeed extremely useful, extremely powerful. But we have to look beyond Larry Diamond to actually fight his battle for furthering uh, democracy because it will not just happen within an 
idealist, uh, idea-based frame, but you have to look beyond to structures of society uh, as well, to look to ideologies, to uh, what makes them uh, work. Now, here, therefore, I come to uh, this part where what, what are the tendencies that we see in previously democratic societies or recently democratic societies or societies which are still, I would say, like India, broadly functioning within a broad within a democratic framework but the tendencies the authoritarian and the fascistic tendencies the movements the populist mobilization is emerging pretty strong what weapons uh, do we need here both to analyze as well as to fight apart of course from understanding the phenomena as a whole which is what i've tried to do with the uh, first part of the talk, knowing its history, looking at how it works. Here, I think uh, the focus uh, focus needs uh, to be on trying to be being having our antenna up, having our information and analytical levels up, recognizing the signs, early signs, and as it goes on, of the negative authoritarian and fascistic tendencies. Often we get, in a sense, uh, uh, lulled by the, by the continuance of the formal institutions of democracy. In India, for example, it's a very difficult question to answer. If you ask me what happened in the last elections, which are just uh, a month and a half ago, uh, did, were they free and fair elections, which are the essence of democracy? I would find it very difficult to answer because we don't yet have the full answers. We have some answers. We have lots of doubts. We have lots of question marks about the freeness and the fairness of those elections. There are many people who've talked about reporters, analysts, about what all was manipulated, not just the money, which is very usual, but much more than that, the manipulation of the electronic voting machines and the, the manipulation of the election commission and all that. So, the question that I'm raising is that when does one begin to worry and begin to struggle and begin to talk about and begin to mobilize, uh, counter-mobilize and start to perceive the threats to democracy. And here there are various people who've written on this, who, again, there's a whole lot of literature on fascism. Uh, and uh, you know, learning from the history of that fascism to learn to recognize uh, those tendencies. But uh, I thought again, for the for the sake of uh, convenience here, I will very quickly just use the work of uh, Jason Stanley. Uh, this is a, a book that came out last year called How Fascism Works. He's again uh, uh, a scholar at, in the US, uh, I think a political scientist. And he did a book two years ago called How Propaganda Works. And this is a new one called, which says How Fascism Works, which is extremely useful uh, because at an analytical uh, level, he, he documents and brings out, and a lot of his examples are from current US politics. You know, so he sees what's been happening in the last four years and is documenting and analyzing that 
as signs of fasting. This is the kind of thing that I think what I'm trying to emphasize is very, very important. And when you see it all put together, you can begin to understand how dangerous it is. You know, it's not just one phenomenon of anti-immigration. It's also what's happening within the attacks on the universities, the attacks, you know, on, on various kinds of things. So just quickly, since I have very little time now, just go through this. Uh, very, very brief. Now, the first thing which uh, he talks about is that he says, always remember, fascists come to power through elections. But then they don't want to hold another election. Right? But they do come to power through elections. So the fact that somebody's come to power through an election doesn't mean anything. He quotes here Hitler, who in uh, Mein Kampf praises, quote, true Germanic democracy, he says, with free choice of the leader, along with his obligation to assume entire responsibility for all he does and causes to be done. So free choice. But after that, the leader takes full responsibility for everything. So we have Modi forever, <laughs> Trump forever, hopefully not. Uh, and, uh, you know, and th this, this I think uh, is, is self-obvious and, you know, so I just leave it at that. This, my, this is this is something I find I found very fascinating, and he deals with it very well, and we need all need to think about it. He says the trap of democracy, and he takes it back, uh, in fact, to uh, Plato's Republic. He says Socrates argues that people are not naturally led to self-governance, but rather seek a strong leader to follow. Democracy, by permitting freedom of speech, opens the door for a demagogue to exploit the people's need for a strong man. The strong man will use this freedom to prey on the people's resentments and fears. Once a strong man seizes power, he will end democracy, replacing it with tyranny. So the Republic, the uh, Plato's Republic argues that democracy is a self-undermining system whose very ideals lead to its own device. So this very important issue of how much what is freedom in a democracy? Do those who do not believe in freedom, who do not believe in democracy, do they have the right to freedom of speech? How much? Why? You know, these are, there are no easy answers. They cannot be because it is a self-contradictory and yet the dangers are obvious. I think just being awake to those dangers is extremely uh, important. In fact, he says, fascists have always been well acquainted with this recipe for using democracy's liberties against itself. The Nazi propaganda minister Goebbels once declared, quote, there will all, this will always remain one of the best jokes of democracy, that it gave its deadly enemies the means by which it was destroyed. Yeah. And then he, uh, I, I don't have the time, but uh, he, he talks about, uh, you know, examples from uh, how in, in, in the U.S., there's this big right wing now attack on the universities, where the universities are being attacked for not believing in free, free speech, which is not giving enough space to right wing elements. The, the academies are being uh, attacked for not having enough right wing professors. So in the name of freedom of speech, you want uh, misogynist, <laughs> you know, racist views to be represented within the academy. And he, he takes on this question and answers it, I think, rather well, where he says that, you know, a, a free discourse is not about having 
uh, every point of view, no matter how absurd it is, which history itself has put outside the pale of civilization back in your back in the classroom. That is not how it uh, goes. So it's like saying the earth is flat. I must hire a scientist who says the earth is flat. You know, why must I hire a historian who believes in racism? Because society's gone through all that and we've said, no, that's not on. So, but the, I think the discussion on this uh, can be extremely productive and useful uh, for us in this uh, group because it's a very complicated and delicate uh, uh, balance. And again, as he says, that usually the most attacked are the leftist or Marxist professors. And uh, in fact, in the US, he says, even the uh, custom, the, the, the rule about tenure, professors getting tenure is being questioned. People are saying, right-wing uh, people are saying, why should professors who indulge in political stuff have tenure? Why should we allow them to teach our children all this uh, political nonsense? They should be teaching them skills. So typically, you also go for skill-based education. You are against the liberal disciplines. You are against the humanities. This is all signs and features of fascistic uh, tendencies. On education, again, uh, he, he points out that how a typical feature of fascistic education is to try and instill pride in a mythic past. It could be a national, it could be racial, and how uh, the, he gives the example of Hungary, where they virtually destroyed their best university, the Central European uh, University for all practical purposes. I think it's, uh, you know, finished. And how that was an inevitable and necessary consequence of what was happening in the realm of politics. They could not have allowed the CEU to continue to exist. And we in jail, you know this too well for the last, uh, you know, since 2016, we've been seeing on a daily basis how uh, the institutions which can be and are uh, uh, where voices of dissent are powerful are first sought to be marginalized and delegitimized, he says, and this is again very interesting. He says, while the process of setting up new institutions and new media which will follow the new ideology is happening, the way they work is to, to delegitimize and weaken the ones that are there. And in the, in the meantime, build the alternative. So it's all, and you, you weaken it in various ways like by uh, like in our case, it's by being uh, uh, the whole world being told that we are, our students were anti-national, you know, etc., uh, etc. Et These are very favorite ones. Uh, uh, again, this is this is quite uh, striking because we are so familiar with it in India. Conspiracy theories, he says, are such a typical feature of fascistic forces. <laughs> And he's uh, probably many of you are aware of this, but I'd still like to remind you. Uh, he says they are usually so outlandish that nobody can believe them. That's how we react. So you let them be. But they are pushed and pushed and pushed to a point where people start believing in them. The more outlandish, the, the more difficult to actually disprove. Uh, and he gives the example of this famous theory uh, which was the basis of Nazi ideology, which was called a book called The Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Early 20th century hoax 
It was supposedly written as an instruction to Jews for world domination. But it was plagiarized from an 1864 book, which was a dialogue, supposed to be a dialogue between Machiavelli and Montesquieu. And it was distorted, and what, uh, Machiavelli's version was presented as the Jewish induction on how to dominate the world. To show how far it could spread, by 1925, Henry Ford, we all know who that was, distributed half a million copies in the US, free of cost, in the US. Hitler and Goebbels believed it to be true. You know, that's how powerful these conspiracy theories can be. So these are not to be dismissed. I said, we are so familiar with it because we have these conspiracy theories about Muslims and how they are all planning to dominate, they all produce. We have, what is this? Five. Five, yeah. Five, you know, five, five in multiplied into 25 and 25. And then we are shown how in another 20 years or 30 years, Muslims will become the majority in India. And, you know, I mean, there are so many conspiracy theories uh, uh, that go on all the time. Um, and the most interesting one, again, those of you who are from US or uh, may, know, may, may, may know about this, apparently there was this conspiracy theory which was spread during the election campaign of uh, Trump and Hillary Clinton, uh, Pizzagate, where it was said that there was a pizza outlet in Washington uh, which was serving as a child trafficking uh, center to supply ch children uh, for sexual favors to Democratic candidates. The whole thing was com a complete lie, but you know, apparently, a lot of people didn't uh, believe that. <laughs> and Inequality. I think this is an issue which I've referred to very briefly while we've been going along. But I think this is one of the structural issues which we would need to talk about uh, during the course of uh, this summer, uh, this, this institute. Because I think ignoring the fact that inequality provides a very fertile ground for such ideologies. Uh, is something that we can do in your talk. And here, uh, 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 Stanley quotes uh, uh, Plato and Aristotle, he said, ever since they wrote on this topic, political theorists have known that democracy cannot flourish on soil poisoned by inequality. To overcome this conflict, therefore, he may be now making a different point, Ideologies based on hierarchy are brought in. How does this happen? To justify the inequality, you need some ideological framework. So to justify slavery, you need racism. To justify discrimination against Muslims, you need Hindu communalism. You know, to justify patriarchy, you need, uh, to justify misogyny, you need patriarchy. So what you do is, if the, the inequality and the discrimination persists, but to cover it up over time, because it cannot go on, the contradiction becomes evident, you then need ideologies essentially where hierarchy is an essential uh, principle to uh, 
to, to be able to handle the contradiction that uh, arises. And this is what the white uh, planters did to the states. This is what imperialists uh, did in the colonies uh, uh, all the time, where ideologies uh, of racism, etc., uh, came to the fore. Now I'm coming to uh, the last point. Uh, the last point that I wish to talk about, uh, Stanley, this, this is a very important uh, one, where he talks of the link between an, uh, nationalism and democracy. And he says that while there is a nationalism which arises as a response to oppression, there is also the nationalism which oppresses. And often the link between the two, he makes a very fascinating uh, argument, taking Serbia as an example of the link between uh, the two, he says some problematic national sentiments arise from perfectly genuine histories of oppression. Serbians have unquestionably been oppressed in the past. One does not have to go back to the Battle of Kosovo in 1389. World War II will suffice. Serbian nationalists use this background to justify the persecution of powerful and more marginalized local Muslim populations. What happens later? You know, the oppressed then become the oppressor. And there is a link uh, between these two. What is that link? When does that happen? When does nationalism become, uh, transform itself from one, a legitimate expression of an oppressed nationality and it becomes a tool for oppressing uh, other nationalities? This is a very important uh, link. And as I said uh, in my uh, introduction, uh, editing, that <laughs> it was there in my abstract, that I don't have time for it, but others are going to talk about it, but I must mention it. We also have to include the colonial world in this discussion. For example, many countries in the West, uh, in which in the modern age, democratic institutions were getting established, were simultaneously developing into imperial powers and bringing large parts of the rest of the world under their economic and political control. Therefore, the flip side of these democracies was that there was a complete and uniform suppression of all impulses and demands for democratic processes in all parts of the colonial world. This is almost completely ignored in all discussions of the progression of democracy. And it's not just one little lacuna. It's something that leads out Perhaps the majority, most of the world, is not just a little, little blip somewhere. Before the middle of the 20th century, when colonies began to get their independence, this very substantial part, uh, which was held under authoritarian control by the same countries who had undergone these democratic transitions, this contradiction, I will not substantiate it, but I will just say it, at the very heart of the democratic world was a continuous course over the centuries of the crisis of democracy. If inequality and discrimination within a country are poison for democracy, 
then inequality and discrimination between countries is also lethal for Thank you.